You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with a Gun Show. I'm your host, Ken Blanchard, and this week, I want to take you back to the 60s, because if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Blackmanwithagun.com, Ken Blanchard's pro-gun podcast. This week on episode number 484, I'm calling it If History is Any Guide. And I'm underneath the washing and dryer and the washing machine will be going off in a little bit, but I'm going to have some clean clothes, doggone it. You know, you have to stay in shape. My mom started walking five miles a day when she was 60. She's in her 70s now. I have no idea where she is. Been dwelling a lot on history this week, and some of the stuff was not really cool. I think I'm going to get some oil for this chair, as a matter of fact. A lot of folks are thinking about their health and fitness, and I'm not into working out anymore. My philosophy right now is no pain and no pain. After John Wayne leaves us in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to talk about some stuff that shaped us and is still shaping us, and just realizing that life hasn't changed much. And I want you to think a little bit about that as you hear the show. Not the happiest show in the world. It's got some grim stuff in it. But it's just showing us that in 50 years, we haven't gone that far. And if you realize that, it'll give you some perspective on how to deal with tomorrow. Because that's all I really want to do is help you. Help you to make it to another week. Hit it, Jay. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation. Under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. This portion of the show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. Crossbreed Holsters has gained national recognition as a maker of the best and most functional concealment holsters available on the market today. Each holster is handcrafted to ensure your firearm is safe and secure while carrying, combined with the best customer service in the industry. Visit CrossbreedHolsters.com. This week I had a great conversation with a couple of friends, and we're talking about the events of today, probably like you have been all week. You look at the news, you look at media, social media, and you see all the Events that are going around, and you're like, wow, we are getting worse and worse. But you have to put it in context, actually. Nothing's really changed. You don't believe me? Pull out some of the top headlines right now. Stuff that has bothered you all week long. And then listen to this. These are a bunch of events that happened in the year 1966. Maybe you weren't there. Or maybe you forgot. In 1966, the Beatles held a press conference in Chicago, during which time John Lennon apologized for his more popular than Jesus remark, saying, I didn't mean it as a lousy anti-religious thing. Groundbreaking took place for the World Trade Center. Martin Luther King Jr. leads a civil rights march in Chicago, during which he is struck by a rock thrown from an angry white mob. The Caesars Palace Hotel and Casino opens in Las Vegas. 
An earthquake in eastern Turkey destroys whole cities. The Hue riots break out in Cleveland, Ohio, the city's first race riot. American President Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Freedom of Information Act, which goes into effect the following year. Congress of Racial Equality, otherwise known as CORE, endorses Goal of Black Power, as well attended convention in Baltimore, and Martin Luther King Jr. and Roy Wilkins criticize this declaration. 31 people are arrested when a demonstration by approximately 4,000 anti-Vietnam War protesters in front of the U.S. Embassy in London's Grover Square turns violent. The gothic soap opera, Dark Shadows, premiered in ABC. It was the last episode of last season of the Dick Van, Dick Van Dyke show as well. In Chicago's Division Street riots begin in response to police shootings of a young Puerto Rican man. Miranda versus Arizona. The Supreme Court of the United States rules that the police must inform suspects of their rights before questioning them. Civil rights activist James Meredith is shot while traversing Mississippi in the march against the fear. U.S. troops in Vietnam total 250,000. The Church of Satan is formed by Anton LaVey in San Francisco. Star Trek, the science fiction series, debuts on NBC. And a man by the name of Charles Joseph Whitman, after killing his mother and his wife, went to the top of the university clock tower in Austin, Texas, after lunch, and began to pick off stragglers who remained. Three police and one retired Air Force tail gunner found their way into the tower, where they shot him six times with a thirty-eight and twice in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun from five feet away. Today, we call it an active shooter. Domestic terrorism. A psycho case. We got names for it. But nothing's changed, not really. Check out this news flash from back in the day. The time is 5.30. David Brinkley is on vacation. I'm Chad Huntley. For an hour and a half today, the normally placid university and capital city of Austin, Texas, was held in the grip of a terror which began in killing and ended in killing. A maddened former Marine, a 24-year-old student in the architectural school named Charles Whitman, first killed his wife and mother in their home. Then he fled to the top of the university tower, a 27-story building, and from there shot to death at least 13 other people and wounded at least 31. The carnage did not end until police ended Whitman's life with several bullets. Here is a report from Neil Speltz of KTBC-TV, Austin. A Marine veteran who was an expert marksman shot and killed 10 unsuspecting noontime strollers on the University of Texas campus today, and then he was cut down an hour and a half later by an Austin policeman. When the shooting ended, 30 others were seriously injured. And then the bodies of the alleged snipers, mother and wife, were found in his apartment, both dead. A tally at this hour is 13 dead, 30 wounded, and that figure includes the death of the man police say did the shooting. A sniper identified as 24-year-old Charles J. Whitman started shooting from the observation deck of the 27-story tall University Tower. He fell moving targets blocks away. A terror-filled 90 minutes started at 5 minutes before 12 Austin time, and it was 1.22 when policeman Ramiro Martinez shot Whitman. Victims were cut down on the west and south sides of the campus as the sniper zeroed in on his targets with unerring accuracy. Those who were felled with bullets from the high-caliber rifle were pulled to safety as soon as possible by officials and passers-by. 
others crouched in terror. Heavily armed Austin police, sheriff's deputies, highway patrolmen, and Texas rangers converged on the campus and began returning the sniper's fire. But he was well entrenched, and he had a fantastic vantage point of the entire area. Reporter Charles Ward was on the scene as the gun battle raged. He described what was happening and then interviewed a Vietnam veteran who risked his life to pull the victims to safety. Ambulances screaming all over the city and more sounds. More shots being fired at the tower and on the tower. On the mall. Department shells. those who is out of breath now after running out onto the mall rescuing those who've been shot is Brian Ellison of Austin who's been in Vietnam has been back for two years. Brian, how many have you gone out to rescue? Today, two. What did you have to do? Run hard and keep low. Did you have any trouble getting them up or uh, did any shots come close to you while you were out there? No shots came close to me. Just the last one, he was dead. He was dead weight. He was a little hard to pick up. Too limp. Not like someone was knocked out. How many have you seen that are dead today? Just one. I hope not anymore. But many of the victims could not be moved until after the sniper was gunned down. And then the university students moved in to see what had happened. One ambulance driver was shot and critically injured trying to haul the wounded to safety. A policeman was killed as he moved in armed to try to get a sight on the sniper. A University of Texas professor was killed as he walked to class. The campus at one time looked like a battlefield. Dead people were lying on the sidewalks under 100 degree temperature with police and others occasionally darting from cover to cover. The sniper was well armed and apparently planned a long siege. After he was cut down, police hauled out of the barricaded observation deck two 30-06 rifles with telescopic sights, a 357 Magnum pistol, and a shotgun. He had two large jugs of water and a footlocker containing food and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. What caused the man to take the lives of so many and wound so many others on a hot summer day may be found in a letter discovered by the bodies of the alleged sniper's mother and wife late this afternoon. The typed letter related Whitman's headaches and his plans to kill his mother and wife, and a grim notation on the message read, Mother and wife, now dead, 3 a.m. His wife was a biology teacher at an Austin high school. The letter was typed last night. This is Neil Spells reporting from Austin. Again, Austin police now place the toll at 16 dead, including 14 shot from the campus tower. NBC News is planning a program on the murder and his possible motivations tomorrow night. All right, we've had like 50 years plus to analyze, to research, to get all the ends to the story. But what does it matter? A lot of people died by the hand of a a guy who snapped. His background, if you want to go there, he's the eldest of three brothers raised in South L Street in Lake Worth, Florida. He had scored 138 on an IQ test at the age of six. He attended St. Anne's High School in Palm Beach, where he was the pitcher on the school's baseball team. 
he took five years of piano lessons. All three brothers served as altar boys at the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church, and Whitman chose the confirmation name of Joseph for himself. As a 12-year-old, he was among the youngest ever to achieve Eagle Scout to his father's delight. When Whitman was 14 and still serving as an altar boy, his scout leader, Joseph Leduc, completed seminary and served as the priest of Sacred Heart for a month. Leduc, later a confidant of Whitman, was a family friend who had accompanied Whitman and his father on several hunting trips. At the age of 16, Whitman underwent a routine appendectomy and was hospitalized following a motorcycle accident. The wedding of Kathy Lassner and Charles Whitman, against his father's wishes, Whitman joined the Marines on July 6, 1959. He explained to Father Leduc that he had come home drunk several weeks earlier and his father had hit him repeatedly and pushed him into the family swimming pool. While Whitman was aboard a train headed toward Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, his father telephoned, quote, some branch of federal government to have his son enlisted. Enlistment canceled, but he was rebuffed. Following his enlistment, Whitman was accepted into the University of Texas Mechanical Engineering Program on September 15, 1961, through a USMC scholarship. His hobbies at this point included karate, scuba diving, and hunting. This last hobby got him into trouble at the university dormitory where he was involved in a teenage prank in which he shot a deer and dragged it inside and skinned it in the shower. And as a result of both this incident and the substandard grades, his scholarship was withdrawn in 63. In 62, Whitman married Kathleen Francis Lesner, another University of Texas student, in a wedding that was held in Kathy's hometown in Needville, Texas, but presided over by Father LeDuc. The following year, he returned to active duty at Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where he was both promoted to Lance Corporal and involved in an accident in which his Jeep rolled over an embankment. After rescuing his pen comrade, Whitman was hospitalized for four days. That November, Whitman was court-martialed for gambling, possessing a personal firearm on base, and threatening another Marine over a $30 loan, for which Whitman demanded $15 interest. He was sentenced to 30 days of confinement and 90 days of hard labor, and was demoted to the rank of private. In December 1964, Whitman was honorably discharged from the Marines and returned to the University of Texas, this time enrolling in its architectural engineering program. Now lacking his scholarship, Whitman worked first as a bill collector for the Standard Finance Company and later as a bank teller at Austin National Bank. By 1965, he had taken a temporary job with Central Freight Lines and worked as a traffic surveyor for the Texas Highway Department. He also volunteered as a scoutmaster for Austin Scout Troop No. 5, while his wife Kathy worked as a biology teacher at Lanier High School. The Whitman family had a long history of dis- dysfunctionality. By 1966, Whitman's mother, Margaret, had announced she was divorcing his father. Whitman drove to Florida to help his mother move to Austin, Texas, where she found work in the cafeteria. The move prompted his youngest brother to move out. Meanwhile, his brother Patrick decided to continue living with their father, whose plumbing business employed him. Whitman's father began to telephone Whitman several times a week, pleading with him to convince his mother to give the marriage another try, but Whitman refused. Shortly after, John was arrested for throwing a rock through a window and released after paying a $25 fine. Now, up to this point, it sounds like the guy's pretty normal, right? According to his journal in 1966, Whitman discussed his depression with the university's doctor, who prescribed Valium and recommended he visit campus psychiatrist uh, Maurice Heady. 
On March 29, 1966, Whitman met with Heatley and spent an hour explaining his frustration with his parents' separation and his increasing strains at work and school. And by the summer, he was uh, producing suicide notes. And the doctor presented or prescribed dexedrine to him. And this led some people to think that he had a tumor, a cancerous glioblastoma tumor in the hypothalamus region of the brain. And they think that might have made him go crazy. Just food for thought there. And then there's more, of course. Federal uh, Father Leduc met with Whitman for the last time two months prior to the shootings and said that Whitman had confided in him that he had lost his faith and no longer considered himself a practicing Catholic. Now, before I got into his lifestyle and his past history, you might have remembered that the uh, news person said that he took a trunk up to the tower. This thing had a 12-gauge shotgun, a Remington 700 with a four times uh, Leo Leopold scope, 6mm Remington rifle, M1 carbine, a 357 Magnum, a Galisa Brescia pistol, a Luger pistol, a machete, ammunition, a Randall knife, a hunting knife, a locking pocket knife, a 1-inch steel rebar, hunter body bag, Whitman's gear included a transistor radio, a Robinson's notebook, paper mink pen, a light green towel, Three and a half gallons of water, three and a half gallon jug of gasoline, a 1954 Nabisco premium toy compass, a hammer, a canteen, binoculars, lighter fluid, box of matches, alarm clock, a pipe wrench, green and white flashlight, four C batteries, two rolls of tape, green duffel bag issued from the U.S. Marine Corps, extension cord, gray gloves, eyeglasses, earplugs, and some deodorant from Menin. And, of course, he had toilet paper, food, 12 cans of it, two cans of condensed milk, bread, honey, and Spam, planters, peanuts, and raisins, and some sweet rolls. At 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, 1966, Whitman phoned Kathy's supervisor at Bell to explain that she was sick and could not make her shift that day. He made a similar phone call to Margaret's workplace about five hours later. Whitman rented a dolly from Austin Rental Company and cashed $250 worth of checks at the bank before returning to Davis's hardware and purchasing an M1 carbine, explaining that he wanted to go hunting for wild hogs. He also went to Sears and purchased a shotgun and a green rifle case. After sawing off the shotgun barrel while chatting with postman Chester Arrington, Whitman packed it together with a Remington 700 bolt-action hunting rifle with that 4x4 four, four Leopold scope. The M1 carbine and the 6mm Remington rifle, three pistols, and various other equipment stowed between a wooden crate and his marine footlocker. Before heading to the tower, he put khaki coveralls on and over his shirt and jeans and under a green jacket. Once in the tower, he also donned a white sweatband. Pushing the rented dolly carrying his equipment, Whitman met security guard Jack Rodman and obtained a parking pass, claiming he had a delivery to make and showing Rodman a card identifying him as a reach a research assistant for the school. He entered the main building shortly after 11.30 a.m., where he struggled with the elevator until employee Vera Palmer informed him that it had not been powered and turned it on for him. He thanked her and took the elevator to the top floor of the tower, just beneath the clock face. 
Whitman then lugged his trunk up three flights of stairs to the observation deck area where he found a receptionist named Edna Townsley. He knocked her unconscious with the butt of his rifle and concealed her body behind a couch. She later died, later died, later died, later died from us later, Cheryl Botts and Don Walden, a young couple who had been sightseeing on the deck, returned to the attendance area encountering Whitman, who was holding a rifle in each hand. Botts later claimed that she believed that the large red stain on the floor was varnish. Whitman and the young couple spoke briefly, and the couple left the room. When they were gone, Whitman barricaded the stairway. Shortly afterwards, two families of tourists were on their way up the stairs when they encountered the barricade. Michael Gabor was attempting to look beyond the barricade when Whitman fired the shotgun at him. Whitman continued to shoot as the families ran back down the stairs. Mark Gabor and his aunt Margaret Lamport died almost instantly. Michael and his mother Mary were permanently disabled. The First Shots from the tower's outer deck came at approximately 11.48 a.m. A history professor was the first to phone the Austin Police Department after seeing several students shot in the South Mall Gathering Center. Many others had dismissed the rifle rapport, not realizing there was actually gunfire. Eventually, the shootings caused panic as news spread, and after the situation was understood, all active police officers in Austin were ordered to the campus. Other off-duty officers, sheriff's deputies, and Texas Department of Public Safety officers also converged on the area to assist. Once Whitman began facing return fire from the authorities, he used the water spouts on each side of the tower as loopholes, which allowed him to continue shooting, largely protected from the gunfire below, which had grown to include civilians who had brought out their own personal firearms to assist police. Ramiro Martinez, or Ramiro Martinez, an officer credited with neutralizing Whitman's threat, later stated in his book that the civilian shooters should be credited as they made it difficult for Whitman to take careful aim without being hit. Police Lieutenant and Sharpshooter Marion Lee reported from a small airplane that there was only one sniper firing from the parapet. The plane circled the tower trying to get a shot at Whitman until it came under fire and was forced to retreat. History Together with the Watts riots of the early 1960s, Whitman's shootings were considered the impetus for establishing SWAT teams and other task forces to deal with situations beyond normal police procedures. It also led President Lyndon B. Johnson to call for stricter gun control policies. After the tragedy, the tower's observation deck was closed for two years, reopening in 1968. However, after several suicides, it was closed again in 74 and remained closed until 1999. Access to the tower is now tightly controlled through guided tours that are scheduled by appointment only, during which metal detectors and other security measures are in place. Repaired scars from bullets are still visible on the limestone walls. Houston McCoy was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder in 1998 by Dr. Mink of Department of Veteran Affairs in Waco, Texas, who related the diagnosis to the tower tragedy three decades earlier. As of 2007, he is living in western Texas. Ramiro Martinez became a narcotics investigator, a Texas ranger, and a justice of the peace in Texas. In 2003, Martinez published his memoirs entitled They Call Me Ranger Ray, from the University of Texas Tower Sniper to Corruption in South Texas. On November 12, 2001, Dave Gunby died 
of long-term kidney complications from a wound he received while on the South Mall. He had been born with only one functioning kidney, which was nearly destroyed by Whitman's shot. After this prospect of losing his eyesight, he refused further treatment and died shortly afterwards. The Tarrant County Coroner's report listed the cause of death as a homicide. Theodore Roosevelt said, The more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. This portion of the show is brought to you by the United States Concealed Carry Association. The USCCA has been providing education, training, and self-defense insurance to responsibly armed Americans since 2003. Join Tim Schmidt and myself here at usconcealedcarry.com. Most of the gun control that we have to deal with right now comes from something that happened in 1968. Passage of the Gun Control Act was initially prompted by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 63. The president was shot and killed with a rifle purchased by mail order from an ad, accordingly to the National Rifle Association magazine, The American Rifleman. Congressional hearings followed and a ban on mail order gun sales was discussed, but no law was passed until 1968. At the hearings, NRA Executive Vice President Franklin Orth supported a ban on mail order sales, stating, We don't think that any sane American who calls himself an American can object to placing into this bill the instrument which killed the President of the United States. Before the passage of the Gun Control Act were Senate Bill 1975 in 1963, which said a bill to regulate the interstate shipment of firearms, and Senate Bill 1592 in 1965, said a bill to amend the Federal Firearms Act of 1938. Both were introduced by Senator Thomas J. Dodd and met with fierce opposition on the floor, but the bills also paved the way for the creation of the Gun Control Act of 1968. The death of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1968 and U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy in June of 1968 renewed efforts to pass the bill. On June 11, 1968, a tie vote on the House Judiciary Committee halted the bill's passage. On reconsideration, nine days later, the bill was passed by the committee. The Senate Judiciary Committee similarly brought the bill to a temporary halt, but as in the House, it passed on reconsideration. House Resolution 17735, known as the Gun Control Act, was signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson on October 22, 1968 banning mail-order sales of rifles and shotguns and prohibiting most felons, drug users, and people found mentally incompetent from buying guns. The Gun Control Act also gave us the Federal Firearms License System. Yeah, it did. In a June 1966 essay, Neil Knox wrote that what was then called the Dodd Bill was opposed by outdoorsman and conservationist Harry R. Woodward, C.R. Guttermuth of the Wildlife Management Institute, Richard H. Stroud of the Sport Fishing Institute, Howard Carter Jr. of the National Sport Shooting Foundation, E.C. Hadley of the Sporting Arms and Manufacturers Institute, or SAMI, Robert T. Dennis of the Isaac Walton League, and countless other sportsmen and sports people in the industry groups because it would have far-reaching and damaging effect on the hunting and shooting sports while failing to reduce crime. In his remarks, remarks upon signing the act, in October 1968, Johnson said, Congress adopted most of our recommendations, but this bill, as big as this bill is, still falls short because we cannot just get the Congress to carry out the requests we made of them. I asked 
of the national registration of all guns and licenses of those who carry those guns for the fact of life that there's over 160 million guns in this country, more firearms than families, if guns are to be kept out of the hands of the criminal, out of the hands of the insane, out of the hands of the irresponsible, then we just must have life licensing. If the criminal with a gun is to be tracked down quickly, then we must have registration in this country. The voices that block these safeguards were not the voices of an aroused nation. They were the voices of a powerful lobby, a gun lobby, that has prevailed for the moment in an election year. At the time of this passage in 1968, NRA Executive Vice President Franklin Orth wrote in The American Rifleman that the measure as a whole appears to be one that the sportsmen of America can live with. It was this turbulent time that the Institute for Legislative Action was created that Neil Knox became despised and hated among his peers, that the gun lobby and the hunting groups and sporting split. There was a lot of issues going on, just like now. This portion of the show has been sponsored by Dylan Precision. Reloaders, reloading equipment, bullet reloading, and bullet reloaders. Check out DylanPrecision.com. Next up, my friend and brother, Michael J. Woodland. Hit it, guy. Thank you, Ken, and welcome to another tip segment. I am Michael Woodland of M-WTactical.com, and today we're going to discuss accuracy. When dealing with accuracy, there's a misconception of either you have it or you don't. If you are one who shoots on the regular and you focus on accuracy, you normally practice your precision until you start to mess up. Some will understand what I'm saying, but if you are new to the gun world, all I'm saying is when you hit your wall, you need to call it a day and reset for another day. If you are doing precision drills with a handgun, these are slow, deliberate shots at distances from 3 yards to 10 yards. As an instructor, this is the time where I normally take notice of a student getting upset because they are not hitting the center of the target with each pull. Like always, when the fundamentals are restated, everything comes back into focus. Then again, accuracy is something that can be taught but not mastered overnight. One day while observing a steel plate match, there was this old guy who I knew mastered the art of accuracy. After a conversation with him on the subject, he confirmed the time dedicated behind the firearm, but also the level of concentration he mastered as well. Then again, there are some people who actually think shooting is something so easy. Well, the concept of shooting is easy, but the art of mastery will take a long time. In my opinion, the secret to mastering accuracy is doing dry fire drills and concentration drills. Not long ago, there was a show where I talked about dry fire drills to work on your concentration. One drill I do from time to time is light a candle and focus on it with the thought of fire. If my attention is diverted and concentration is broken with my thoughts going elsewhere, I reset myself and just think fire. Once again, doing this drill for at least five minutes. Depending on how my day went determines how the session will go. This is one drill I do to assist with me focusing on the front sight post while shooting. Take a week practicing with the two drills. Alternate your days with one day doing dry fire drills, the next day doing concentration drills. 
then draw fire drills. Then on the fourth day, shorten your training time and conduct both draw fire and concentration drills. This day, you can break it up how you see fit, whether you do one in the morning and then the other in the evening, or you can break it down to, let's say, do one at three o'clock and then the other at six o'clock or whatever combination you desire. Then on day five or six, take it to the range and practice with live rounds. You will see an improvement in your shots, but don't stop training there. Tune in next week as we tackle another area of marksmanship for another tip segment. Visit us on Facebook by searching for M-W Tactical in the search bar. Hit the like button and join the discussions on the post. If you are in the photos, follow me on Instagram at MJ Woodland, where you can get an up-close and personal involvement of what I'm doing, whether in the military or out doing shooting somewhere close to you. If you are not internet savvy, we have that covered also. Go to www.m-wtactical.com where you can easily connect with us on any of the previously discussed social platforms while reading about us, looking at pics, viewing future classes, ordering products, or even listening to the current week of the Black Man with a Gun podcast. For the totally old school, just call 803-250-1256. And let's discuss whatever is on your mind from shooting classes or just inviting us out to come to your event. Until next week, keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Thanks, man. Man, you got this thing down now. Michael came up to uh, Maryland, and we hung out for a day, him and his beautiful little daughter. And he's just one of the few people who has enriched my life in spite of me. I can be tough sometimes. I mean, I got, like, so many things going on, so many people pulling at me that I can't even entertain all the requests that I get sometimes to folks who come to the nation's capital and they want to hang out with me. I, I want to hang out with you, but this isn't my full-time job, so I make it do what it do. But thank you for sticking with me. I really do mean that. I get calls from like Crash and from Mitch and from Lloyd and Kale and emails from you guys means a lot to me. Thank you so much for being you. Just want to give that quick little shout out. Love you. And furthermore, if you live in the cities, in a place that's not gun friendly, you might want to start saving your dollars and purchase some stuff that you won't be able to get in the future. I'm just saying. And those who are instructors, knowing that you might want to work on your business plan too with the coming administrations and the coming politicians and the coming things that are coming down the pike, just like they did in the 60s, it's going to get a little tight. Today's not a good day to uh, put your shingle out there. you got quite a lot of competition as it is. I'm just saying. For my legal eagles out there, i got a couple of cases that I want you to check out in preparation maybe for next week's show. United States versus Dewberry. Delaware versus Prowse. Terry versus Ohio, Tennessee versus Garner, Plumhoff versus Rickard, Brown versus Texas, Chamel versus California, Miranda versus Arizona, Wren versus the United States, and DC versus Heller. What's happening? 
Check it out. Next week, episode number 485. Now that I thoroughly bummed you out or confused you, let me give out some shout-outs to some friends of mine. MWTactical.com. Check out Michael J's events and stuff that he's doing there. Don't forget to check out also Charlie Cook's personal shooting instruction. He is the guy that does the bugle and the shootograms, the gungrams, kind of cool. And least but not last, I think I got dyslexia in my old age. Check out Barbara Baird and Carrie Lightfoot's women's gun shows. New podcast doing really, really well. You might have to save this episode for the future, kind of lock it away and remember it was here when things turn to the negative. Time to turn off the television. Turn back to your family and your friends. Make better connections with them. Resist viewing negative images over and over. Walk away from conversations that contain negativity. Try to keep your life as structured as possible. Again, try not to be alone. Eat meals as a family. Allow friends to offer consolation even when being around others is painful. We are stronger together than we are divided. For those of the faith, turn back to God. If history is any guide, remember this. Michael Crichton, author, wrote, If you don't know history, you don't know anything. You are like a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. Just in case nobody else has told you today, I love you. And there is nothing you can do about it. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting The Black Man with the Gun Show. Until next week, shalom, baby. Until next time, friends. To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com. Be some kind of way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig the earth None will level on the line Nobody of it is worth it. No reason to get excited. The thief he kindly spoke. There are many here among us Who feel that life is but a joke But you and I, we've been through that And this is not our fate 
So let us not talk falsely now The hour's getting late Hey All along the watch 